0: Who do people think Jesus is? Uh, What do they expect him to be like? I think if we took a survey, uh, these five answers or six answers would be fairly common. Uh, Some people would say he's gentle and weak. Uh, He taught people to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek. Uh, Some people say he's a wise teacher, good advice. For you to follow. Uh, Others would say he's a dead sacrifice. Uh, He failed at his task. I can ignore him. Other people would say he's a baby. I love Christmas because Jesus is a baby. Uh, Other people would say he's a myth, uh, like the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy. Uh, And I suspect that this last one would be the most common in many parts of Australia, that Jesus is irrelevant. Yes, he probably existed, but really, who cares? Now, I wonder what misunderstandings your friends or family or work colleagues have about who Jesus is. Uh, You may be the only one, uh, you may be the one that God wants to explain Jesus to them. How can you be showing uh, these sorts of uh, people how or what Jesus is like? Well, as we come to Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' ministry today, we see that he meets uh, these same sorts of misunderstandings. Uh, people are expecting God's Messiah to appear. Uh, and they have an idea about what he will be like. Uh, the, the prophets promise that when Jesus, um, the Messiah arrives, he'll bring blessing and joy and victory. But Jesus is bringing a different sort of blessing. He won't do things the way people expect. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14, he describes the start of his public ministry. Uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Now everyone was excited because he had been doing uh, amazing miracles. Uh, Because he's got the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, there is power in his words. Suffering, sickness, Satan were being defeated. It was great news. It was just what the people hoped that the Messiah would do. Then we read verse 16, he arrives back home in Nazareth. That was where he grew up. And he turns up at the synagogue on the Sabbath, like he had done hundreds of times before. And the custom was that whenever there was a visiting teacher, he would be asked to read the scriptures and then explain them. He would read them out in Hebrew, just like Jews still do all over the world today. And he would do it standing up out of respect for God's word. But then he would sit down in the ruler's seat in the synagogue and give, firstly, a rough translation... Uh, And an explanation of that in Aramaic, which was the language most Jews spoke at that time. Now that's what happened here with Jesus. Uh, He was given the scroll of Isaiah. I wonder if that's what he'd been meditating on out in the wilderness, thinking about his role as God's servant, and what God had been referring to at Jesus' baptism when He'd said to Jesus that he was well pleased with his son. Uh, the same thing Isaiah 42.1 says about God's servant. So Jesus unrolls the scroll until he finds chapter 61, nearly at the end. Probably took a while. And he reads these words, verse 18, in our reading. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now this, in its original context, was a great promise for the future from God for his people. Isaiah wrote it in some senses about himself, but also about a future servant who would come and announce God's rescue in a new way. So that's the the reading. And, And then... Verse 20, Jesus finishes, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and he sits down on the stage and everyone's looking at him, waiting for him to begin. The young men he grew up with, his family, the old men who knew him as a baby, who taught him in Sabbath school and they wait expectantly because they've heard what he's been doing and saying Uh, some amazing things. What's he going to say about these verses, about God's promise to send a rescuer? And then Jesus starts talking, verse 21, everything I just read from Isaiah was written about me. I'm doing more than just quoting Isaiah. In fact, it's the other way around. Isaiah wrote these words about me. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. I've got a message from God for you and it's great news. His kingdom is on its way and his kingdom is about freedom and sight and the end of poverty and the relief from pain. Now that's great news, isn't it? Understandably, the people are pretty pleased. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Who would have thought? Such good news from someone we've known since he was a baby. How unexpected. But here's the first complication. Do you see it? How do they describe Jesus? Who is he according to them? He's Joseph's son. But in the last chapter, we saw who he really was. We saw the truth that at his baptism, what do we learn? What does God say to Jesus? 322 You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. But that comes as a bit of a surprise for his friends and neighbours. They love his message, but all they can see when they look at him is Joseph's little boy. It's the first sign they misunderstand Jesus. They're too busy looking with their eyes to see that God is at work in Jesus through his spirit. And Jesus realises it because he gives a strange answer, verse 23. He sees the motives behind their question. He sees their greed, their self centeredness Misunderstanding what Jesus is about. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. In other words, you're expecting to see some of this good news right here in Nazareth, like you heard that I did in Capernaum. Some of that Isaiah stuff, prisoners freed, blind people healed. You see, they speak well of Jesus out of their self interest. They're more concerned with personal benefit than the amazing news that God's new kingdom is dawning. But the truth is, God's plans are much bigger than just Nazareth, they're much bigger than Israel. And Jesus gives them a sharp rebuke. Verse 24 No prophet is accepted in his hometown. And he goes on to give them a history lesson about Elijah and Elisha. And his point is, back in the time of those prophets, God chose not to work in Israel, but to work among the Gentiles. There were plenty of Jews to help. And yet it was to non-Jews that God did a miracle. Jesus' point is that in the time of Elijah and Elisha, uh, that's what God did. And that's what he's doing now. God hasn't suddenly changed his way of doing things with Jesus. He has always been interested in those outside of Israel as well. The only thing he's looking for is faith, not nationality. The people of Nazareth need to expand their horizons. And they need to trust the Saviour and the Messiah who's right there with them. And we see by the crowd's reaction that Jesus gets them right. They misunderstand Jesus, but he doesn't misunderstand them. Verse 28, they're enraged with those words of Jesus. How dare God choose to take his good kingdom somewhere else? Who does God think he is? Why? He should be blessing us. And so verse 29, they drive him out of town right to the edge of a cliff. It's a mob lynching. It's shocking, isn't it, how quickly they turn? A few moments earlier they're speaking well of him and now they're trying to kill him. They're only glad about Jesus when he fits their plans, when he benefits them, and they're not willing to share. Do you sometimes treat Jesus like that? Uh, Keep him to yourself. Are you unwilling to step outside of your comfort zone to share him? Are you happy to spend time with other Christians where it's comfortable but not willing to go beyond that? What about your attitudes towards other types of people? Do you limit who you think deserves to know Jesus? Do you dismiss people as being beyond God's grace? Oh, I won't talk about Jesus with them, they're too wealthy, they wouldn't be interested. Or oh, they're too intellectual, they're too difficult, they're too happy. I think I've thought that. This person's life's complete, do they really need Jesus? Are they too sinful, are they too far, too far gone for me to share Jesus with them? God's plan has always been for people from every nation to follow him. Every language and culture and class. Right back to Abraham in the first book of the Bible. God said that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. Now, Not just back then, but history is headed there as well. Revelation 7 describes who will be in heaven praising Jesus. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, I don't know what language they're saying that in, but I think they're saying that in all the languages. What do you think, Anne? Well, I think all the languages. at once. And we'll understand them all, because it's every language. Now that's a great goal for our church to be working towards as well. That's where we're headed. every language. Well, that's the crowd's reaction. Let's not get distracted by the crowd's reaction, though. Uh, it's the core message. That is great news. Look at that quote from Isaiah again. It's revolutionary. A revolution is coming with Jesus. He's restoring the balance. He's giving to those people who have nothing. God's upside down way of doing things is on its way. In the life of Jesus, there is freedom for prisoners. There's relief for the poor. There's sight for the blind. There's laughter for sadness. Now we hear those words and I suspect that for many of us it, it's quite theoretical and at a distance, perhaps even it's metaphor. Mostly we have all that we need, don't we? We have food and health care. We have political and economic freedom. We're quite free. But put yourselves in the shoes of that typical Galilean subsistence worker. Who heard those words? They lived from hand to mouth. They had no savings, no effective medic- medicine or health care. A cut or a cold can kill them. They're ruled by Rome. They're under threat from drought and disaster and disease. And Isaiah is promising freedom for prisoners. Relief for the poor. Sight for the blind, laughter for sadness. And Jesus announces it. It's great news. He announces it and then he shows it. From verse 31, we see, I think, a typical day in the life of Jesus. I think that's what Luke gives us, a typical day. God's good news, spirit-powered servant. And we see four events. We see morning, lunchtime, evening and daybreak. First, morning. It's another Sabbath. He's back in Capernaum. There's a man in the synagogue with an evil spirit. a, A prisoner who needs to be freed. And in verse 34, the demon cries out, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus throws open the prison door. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And the people are amazed at his power. One prisoner released. That's the first event. Next, Jesus goes to Simon's house, verse 38. Maybe it's lunchtime. Simon's mother in law has a high fever. It says literally that she's constrained or afflicted by a high fever. This is another prisoner needing freedom. Another oppressed person who needs release. And so verse 39, Jesus rebukes the fever. Interesting, isn't it? Just like the demon. He speaks the word. He announces that the upside-down kingdom is coming and the upside-down kingdom arrives. At a word. The announcement makes it happen. Just the way God did back at creation in Genesis, He speaks and it happens. The oppressed woman is released and at once she gets up and makes them lunch. Well, next episode in this one 24 hour period, uh, it's later that evening. Have a look at verse 40. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of diseases, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Verse 41, more demons. Identifying Jesus as the Son of God, but Jesus rebukes them and would not let them speak. Now that's strange, isn't it? It's unexpected. You would think that publicity like that for Jesus would be good, Especially when the demons correctly identify him as the son of God. Do you notice? (laughs) They're actually better than the people at recognising Jesus. They only see the son of Joseph. But Jesus has a good reason for keeping the demons quiet. We'll come back to it in a moment. So we see all kinds of sickness and Jesus heals everyone. All sorts of demons and Jesus banishes them. All sorts of prisoners and Jesus releases them. Anyone and everyone, just like Isaiah had promised. God's revolutionary kingdom is on its way. But there's one final twist. There are all sorts of wonderful things happening, but for Jesus, they're not the priority. For Jesus, preaching is more important than miracles. Which we would suspect if we paid close attention to Isaiah's prophecies because they talk about one who will preach good news. Someone who proclaims freedom. So look at verse 42. He gets up at daybreak. This is our fourth time reference. It's the start of a fresh day. He needs a fresh start. He's looking for somewhere quiet. (laughs) The people were looking for him when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Despite what everyone else expected, despite what everyone else wanted, which was miracles, was setting people free... Preaching the good news is more important than miracles. Why? Why are words more important than action? Especially if you're chronically sick or in pain. But here's the reason because the sickness and the demon possessions and the oppression, they're just symptoms the symptoms of the real cause the real problem is mankind's sin and his separation from god it's no good just treating the symptoms but ignoring the root cause it's like taking an aspirin when you've split your head open you may feel better for a while but the aspirin won't fix the problem jesus He heals and frees people because he loves them. He always heals. He loves to see pain and suffering removed. It's what his kingdom is about, but those are just symptoms of the problem. Jesus has come to deal with the underlying problem. And that's what preaching is doing. He's come to bring people back to God. He's come to proclaim forgiveness of sin and ultimately to die on a cross to make that happen. And that is fixing the root cause. That is your biggest problem. That is my biggest problem. That is the biggest problem for your friends and your relatives and your work colleagues who misunderstand Jesus, no matter what other problems they have in their life. They need their sin forgiven. That's why preaching is more important than healing. And it explains why he rebukes the demons and wouldn't let them speak. Because that sort of publicity is focusing on the symptoms, on demonic powers defeated. And that sort of publicity produces the misunderstanding that ends with crowds trying to throw him off a cliff. Preaching is more important than healing because it sets people free for eternity. What good are healed legs and eyes that see if the people still end up in hell? That's not freedom. It's where some churches get it wrong today, I suspect. They focus on symptoms rather than the cause. Some churches will focus on healing. They may preach the gospel, but if the focus is on physical healing rather than spiritual forgiveness, then they're focusing on symptoms rather than the cause. It's the same with churches who concentrate on social needs or aged care or drug education. It's focusing on the symptoms, not the disease. Those sorts of churches are like a major hospital that only offers Panadol and Band-Aids. They close down their surgical wards. That sort of church is making friends with the world, but they're not making friends for God. Jesus' priority is preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That is the freedom that people need most for eternity, freedom from sin and death. That's why our focus as a church is preaching the good news about salvation and forgiveness. Even though there are other good things we can be doing and other good things that we do, they're not the best thing. It's why the mission of our church is growing followers of Jesus rather than a mission that says taking care of people or showing the love of Jesus. We do love people. That's why we want to offer them what they need most. They need Jesus most. But that's not the end of the story. It's not either or. The wonderful news, as we read through, as we keep reading through the Bible, is that God's wonderful upside-down kingdom, is not about one or the other. It's not about forgiveness or healing. Jesus has actually come to set us free from both. He will deliver us from the symptoms as well as the disease. He will deliver us from suffering as well as sin. What we see Jesus doing here in this one day will become a reality for all eternity. The wonderful freedom that Jesus gave on earth for a few people for a few years, it's only a shadow of the reality. God's kingdom in Jesus is a glimpse, a foretaste of the future. It'll be nothing compared to when Jesus comes back, when the new heavens and the new earth begin. The glorious good news is that Jesus has come to give us physical healing and riches and comfort and prosperity and peace, but we will only see them fully when he returns in the new heavens and the new earth, not yet, but soon. No more sickness or pain, no more despair or tears or evil, just freedom and peace and joy. At the moment, Christians, we know forgiveness of sin. That is real, that is eternal. But even as Christians, we experience the effects of sin. We experience its stain on the world. Sickness, poverty, injustice, broken relationships, pain. But Jesus announces that his kingdom is coming He announces it by his word and by his deeds. A life that is free of sin and the symptoms of sin. If you want to be part of that future, you need to listen to Jesus' preaching, his message of forgiveness of sin. If you're not yet a Christian, that's what you need to do. What people wanted from Jesus during his life he could only do one person at a time for short periods of time. But at the cross he wins release and joy and freedom for eternity for anyone who asks. That's who Jesus is and that's what he does. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus We thank you for his message of forgiveness of sin. We thank you for his love that sets people free from suffering. We think of people that we know, uh, perhaps even ourselves, uh, people here today, uh, who need uh, freedom. uh, Freedom from suffering. uh, Freedom from the effects of sin. Help them to trust you to look to you so that Jesus might set them free as well. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.